we had heard a report on TV about a body being found that was badly burned on the railroad tracks, but never did we ever connect the two. We were two blocks from where she was. If they had just knocked on the door, walked the streets, we, I don't, we don't know if we could have saved her life, but she wouldn't have sat there for two days in the trash can. Hello listeners, and welcome back to another episode of It's Crime Time. I hope you all are staying healthy and safe. I decided to do a quick episode this week despite having college finals and being on the hunt for a new car after my accident. So, this case is actually one I found on a blog that was a list of someone's top 10 horrific murder cases. Now, I do recall hearing about this years ago, at least the victim's names anyway. It's quite a gruesome, shocking story, to be honest. I will be telling you the story of the torture and murders of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom. All right, everyone, it's crime time. Now, the information out there about this case doesn't go into an extreme amount of detail as to the lives of Shannon and Chris before the crime, but I will add a little bit of what I found out about them. Shannon Christian was born on April 29, 1985 in Nacogdoches, Texas, to parents Dina and Gary Christian. The family later moved to Louisiana and then from Louisiana to Tennessee in 1997. And Shannon graduated from Farragut High School. Shannon was a 21-year-old senior attending the University of Tennessee in Knoxville to obtain a degree in sociology. Shannon was living with her parents at the time of her passing. Hugh Christopher Newsom Jr., who simply went by Chris, was born on September 23, 1983, in Knoxville to parents Hugh and Mary Newsom. He was a graduate from Halls High School and a baseball player for the Halls Red Devils. He was a carpenter and also lived with his parents at the time of his passing. Anybody that knew Chris was his friend and and he had a smile that everybody just loved. Chris was an excellent baseball player. Good boy, good kid, worked hard, um, had a lot of skills. Could have went on and played further if he'd have chose to. She was a typical girl. I mean, she wasn't perfect. Nobody's perfect, but she was, never gave us any trouble. Always did well in school. She was beautiful, but what made her even more beautiful was the fact that she was not stuck on herself. The two met and began dating in November of 2006, on the night of January 6, 2007, when Shannon was 21 and Chris was 23, the couple had plans to attend one of their friend's birthday parties. However, 
they have decided to stay at another friend's apartment at an apartment complex known as the Washington Ridge Apartments to watch movies. At 12.35 a.m., Shannon called her parents to check in on them. She spoke to her father, Gary, to let him know that she had decided to come home instead of stay at her friend Kara's apartment. Her parents had waited for her return home, but she hadn't returned. Little did they know, Chris and Shannon had actually been carjacked in the apartment complex parking lot. The couple were taken to a rental home on Chipman Street. Shannon had been sitting in her Toyota RAV4 while Chris stood outside the vehicle with the door open, leaning in to kiss her when their carjackers held them at gunpoint. Shannon's mother contacted Chris's parents to let them know she had not heard from her daughter and that she was filing a missing persons report. Now they had obviously not heard from Chris either. Shannon's parents also contacted her cell phone provider to see if they could see where her cell phone had last pinged. On January 7th, a worker found Chris's body near the railroad tracks between 9th and Cherry Streets. Chris was bound, blindfolded, gagged, and was naked from the waist down. He had been raped with an object and by a person. He was shot in the neck, back of the head, and the back at the railroad tracks. His body had also been set on fire as a way to try to destroy the evidence. Chris had been tortured and attacked at the home and then he had been brought to the railroad tracks to be disposed of easier. On January 8th, the next day, while Shannon's family were helping police to search, they discovered her Toyota RAV4 on Glider Avenue, near the rental home on Chipman Street. Her vehicle was searched and an envelope was discovered that was tested for fingerprints. The fingerprints were found to belong to a man by the name of Lamarcus Davidson, who lived at 2316 Chipman Street. This home was two blocks from where Shannon's vehicle was found. On January 9th, Shannon's body was found stuffed inside a trash bin at Lamarcus's rental property. Shannon had been brutally tortured for hours before passing away. She sustained traumatic brain injuries, injuries to her vagina, anus, and mouth due to repeated sexual assault. The attackers attempted to remove any DNA evidence of the sexual assaults by dumping bleach down her throat and scrubbing her entire body with it while she was still alive. She was then bound with strips of bedding. Her face was covered with a trash bag, and then her body was wrapped in five more trash bags. Her neck was even broken and then she was stuffed into the trash bin, still alive. Trash from fast food and sheets were thrown on top of her. She slowly suffocated to death in the trash bin. On January 11th, police found three more suspects. Latalvis Cobbins, Lamarcus's half-brother, Latalvis's friend George Thomas. The two were at home in Kentucky. Oh, and by the way, I said three suspects. Latalvis actually had his girlfriend there with him too. On that same day, police finally located Lamarcus's in a home on Reynolds Street. The next day, police found a fourth suspect, Eric Boyd. So in total, there were five suspects, Lamarcus, Latalvis, his girlfriend, Vanessa Coleman, George, and Eric. I've covered cops, courts, and crime in East Tennessee for about two decades now. 
Um, and this case is unique on, for a number of reasons. It is unusual to have two victims. Um, it is unusual to have a stranger crime uh, in the sense that the victims and the defendants did not know each other. The level of violence is not as unusual, but, but a bit unusual uh, for the length of time that that violence was carried out. It's unusual in how it's gripped the community's attention. Um, and I think part of that is because you had two kids who were from fairly well-to-do families uh, who were not doing anything wrong. Uh, people look at this case and they think that could be me or that could be my kids. Um, and so it touches people in that way. Many people thought the crimes were racially motivated, but police assured the public that the killings were entirely random. On May 28th of that year, a protest organized by white supremacists had occurred. Police and prosecutors, as well as the families of Shannon and Chris, made it very clear that they were not the victims of a hate crime. People thought this often because they weren't really covered on the news a lot, and they weren't searched for very well when they disappeared. The police kind of told them, well, they're adults, they can disappear when they want to. And so... A lot of people thought, well, that was because they were white and they were attacked by, you know, a group of five blacks. But that wasn't the case. It wasn't racially motivated. It was just they chose a random couple. They wanted to carjack them. And then it turned into apparently, apparently it wasn't going to be a murder, but I'm not exactly sure about that. But they claimed that they just were looking to steal their car and their money or whatever they had. And then they were going to you know, leave them, but then it turned into this whole gruesome torture crime. The home where the two were tortured was finally demolished on October 10th, 2008. Now I'm kind of getting ahead here, but these are two facts I just wanted to throw in here. In July, 2009, the families finally saw photos of the crime scene at the home. So they hadn't even seen any photos of the crime scene or actually where it happened the trash bin that she was placed in and everything. So they finally saw that in July 2009, and this was after the house had been demolished already and everything. On March 4th, 2008, the judge announced he had plans to seek the death penalty for all four suspects that were directly involved. Eric was being tried separately for being an accessory. Lamarcus Naval Davidson, also known as Slim, was born on June 13, 1981. He was facing 46 charges in connection to the crime. On August 5, 2006, Lamarcus had just been released from prison after doing a five-year sentence for carjacking and robbery in a previous crime. Latalvis Darnell Cobbins, also known as Rome, was born on December 20, 1982. He's the half-brother of Lamarcus. He was also facing 46 charges. He was charged with assaulting a corrections officer while being held in prison pending his trial for the murders. He had previously been convicted in 2003 for third-degree attempted robbery in New York. Vanessa L. Coleman was born on June 29, 1988. She was the girlfriend of Latalvis. She was arrested in Kentucky with Latalvis. She faced... 40 of the charges, but was indicted on 12 counts of felony murder related to the rape, kidnapping, robbery, and theft, 
one count of premeditated murder for Shannon, one count of especially aggravated robbery of Chris, four counts of especially aggravated kidnapping, 20 counts of aggravated rape, and two counts of theft. George Giovanni Thomas, who they called Detroit, was born January 23, 1983, also faced 46 charges. He was indicted on 16 counts of felony murder, two counts of premeditated murder, two counts of especially aggravated robbery, four counts of especially aggravated kidnapping, 20 counts of aggravated rape, and two counts of theft. Eric Dwayne Boyd, who they called E, was arrested in connection with the carjacking as well. He was not indicted by a grand jury until 2018, however. He faced charges as an accessory after the fact due to helping the other four evade the police. George and Latavis attempted to blame Eric for the murders. However, DNA was obtained and charges against him for the murders did not result. Until later, that is. Each of the suspects were to be tried separately during the year 2008, but the trials were moved to 2009. The judge, Judge Richard Baumgardner, allowed George and Latavis to be tried by juries from Davidson County, which included the location where the crimes had happened. Attorneys for George attempted to file for a speedy trial, claiming there was no link to George Thomas and the crime scene. The motion was granted, and George was to be put on trial August 11, 2008. Judge Baumgardner, or Baumgardner, sorry for that pronunciation, ruled that phone calls made by George in prison could be admissible as evidence. Now, I didn't find exactly why, but one could probably guess he must have spoke about his part in this crime with someone who he called from prison. The DA announced that the state was seeking the death penalty for Latelvis and his girlfriend Vanessa if they were convicted of the crimes as well. Lamarcus was also indicted for a second robbery he had committed after the murders while attempting to evade the police. So before he had been caught, obviously, he, I guess, robbed a second group of people or a second person. I didn't find much about that, who he robbed or what he had exactly done. The worst part of the trials, in my opinion, was when Judge Baumgartner threatened to ban Chris's family from the courtroom after they called Lamarcus's attorney a jerk for interrupting their discussion. A jerk, really. That's, I mean, you're going to kick a murder victim's family out of a courtroom just because they called the murderer's attorney a jerk. I mean, that's, wow, that's such a horrible insult. A jerk does not even begin to cover this guy's attorney. Trust me. But that's besides the point. On April 16, 2008, Eric was found guilty for being an accessory to a fatal carjacking and for failing to report the location of the fugitives. He was sentenced to 18 years in prison in Mississippi. August 25, 2009, Latavis was found guilty of the murders. He faced the possibility of the death penalty because he was convicted of first-degree murder in the case of Chris. He was found guilty of facilitation of Chris's murder, but acquitted in his rape. The jury deliberated for 10 hours, and Latavis was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. October 28, 2009, Lamarcus was found guilty. The jury unanimously voted that Lamarcus should receive the death penalty. 
he also received 80 more charges related to this case in 2010. Those sentences were to be served consecutively to the death penalties. December 8, 2009, George was found guilty on multiple counts. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for four of the capital convictions. Vanessa was granted immunity by federal authorities for her testimony in the federal case. However, state courts ruled that her immunity could not extend to her state charges on murder and rape. On May 13, 2010, she was acquitted on charges of first-degree murder but sentenced to 53 years on lesser charges. The defendants appealed their convictions after Judge Baumgartner had to resign in 2011 due to being addicted to drugs, purchasing prescription drugs from convicts, and trading favors for sex during breaks and court sessions. It was ruled that he was most likely impaired during their trials. The new judge, John Kerry Blackwood, granted four defendants new trials. There was a motion set citing that Blackwood had emotional involvement in the case, and a senior judge was appointed to oversee the trials. This judge was Judge Walter Kurtz. Retrials were denied for Lamarcus and Latelvis, but they were granted for George and Vanessa. This time, Judge Blackwood sentenced Vanessa to 35 years instead of 53. George was then sentenced to life in prison, but with the possibility of parole after 51 years. But on June 4, 2013, Judge Kurtz sentenced George to two consecutive life sentences plus 25 years. He attempted to appeal, but the Supreme Court denied to hear his case. Eric was then tried in the state trial and convicted of far more charges, finally receiving life in prison without the possibility of parole instead of 18 years. You could take a room that was just somber and she could walk into it and everybody in the room was, was uh, having a good time automatically. Today and every day, for 10 years, Gary Christian thinks about his daughter. More than anything, she loved children. A daughter he will never walk down the aisle. I think she would probably be married and she would have kids. Children he will never get to meet. Uh, I think about that a lot and what they would look like and how they would be. Memories that were robbed after Shane and Christian was brutally murdered 10 years ago. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's been 10 days. Dina Christian, Shannon's mother, is now a grandmother. As Shannon had an older brother named Chase. Chase and his wife now have two young children. Dina always peers into her daughter's bedroom and she thinks of other children and their parents. Her daughter's room still remains untouched since the murders. And here's a quote I would like to add from Dina because it kind of put me in my feelings a little bit, I guess you could say. Quote, get involved in your kids' lives. We're not promised tomorrow. Love your kids. I was lucky enough to have 21 years with Shannon. She was so loving. I want people to just be the same. End quote. All right, everyone, that concludes this short episode of It's Crime Time. If you enjoyed, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to and give me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, check out It's Crime Time Pod on social media.